Well, if you'll stay standing for just a moment, I will be preaching from this morning um, Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. It says this, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, says the, to the, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. You may be seated. Well, this morning, I'm thankful for the opportunity to preach. Um, be in prayer for Casey as he's traveling this week and, and preaching. Uh, and for Blake as well, who's not feeling uh, up to par this morning. And so, um, this morning you get that kid at the end of the bench. It's like, hey, you're in. And you're like, what? Okay, so... Uh, but this morning, I wanted to talk to you about the greatness of God and how we can trust in Him, uh, to not trust in man, uh, but to trust in the Creator of man. And as I was thinking about this, as I was preparing uh, to speak this morning, um, I think about a lot about, and it's hard to not think about if you hear any of the news, if you see anything on your phones or all the bad news that comes out, um, that Americans' views of the state of moral values in, this, in the U.S. are dismal. And their expectations of the future are grim. And according to statistics, this, this uh, general uh, case of, of this moving towards this grimness, this grim outlook on our moral decay has really taken effect over the last 20 years. It's a trend of negative ratings. And um, even as negative as it has seemed in the past, it seems like it's even worse now. And there's this feeling of hopelessness. You know, when you look at the news in our country today, even, even among those who, do, who don't identify as one who believes in a higher power, it's just a sense of hopelessness. The Gnostics and philosophers of our day, as well as religious and political leaders, all have the same grim outlook on our society. I mean, even our president says we are in a fight for the soul of America, whatever that means. And I'm not here to make a political speech, or, nor am I here to give a nihilistic or gloomy outlook of where we are in a historical sort of way. Um, and, I, and I think about this, you know, when you, when you think about history, you think about people in the Dark Ages. They didn't think of themselves as living in the Dark Ages, right? We, we look at them and, and say, man, it was a hor- horrible time to live. And I feel like we're kind of in that mode right now. But I'm here to say, I want to say this morning that there is hope. But I do want to remind us all that any nation who has rebelled against a holy God will have no peace, no security. And unless that nation addresses the root cause of the problem, 
And that is that we as a nation are in open rebellion to Yahweh. Unless we address this issue, there is little to no hope. And this is the state of God's people in Isaiah's time here, here when we get to chapter 40. It was a time of great political turmoil for the nation of Judah. Sound familiar? Assyria was expanding its empire, attacking Israel and Syria to the north. When Judah refused to join a coalition with Israel and Syria to resist Assyria, Judah was attacked by Israel and Syria in retaliation. As Judah seriously considered inviting Assyria to help, Isaiah stepped in and sought to encourage the king and the people to trust only in Yahweh. Well, King Ahaz of Judah rejected Isaiah's advice and asked Assyria to come and come to his aid. And Assyria accepted the offer, and the capital of Israel, Samaria, fell in 722 B.C. And now this may sound like a good time for, for Judah, like they... They did their own thing, and it, it worked out for them. But it soon became apparent that Judah was next on Assyria's hit list. And Judah began looking to Egypt in the south for help. Once again, Isaiah counseled the nation to make no alliance but trust in only the Lord. This time, King Hezekiah heeded Isaiah, and God rewarded his faith by destroying the Assyrian host, in Isaiah 36 through 37. But in a moment of weakness, Hezekiah showed the ambassadors from Babylon, Assyria's enemy, the house of his treasures. And this prompted Isaiah to prophesy that the king's treasures and his descendants would be taken away to Babylon. And we see that in Isaiah chapter 39. And with this prophecy as an introduction, chapters 40 through 66 of Isaiah speaks from the viewpoint of Babylonian exile and foretells of the coming pardon, deliverance, and restoration of God's people. And this passage in Isaiah chapter 40 was a wake-up call for Judah. And it's a message I think we need to hear again and again. It is a story of the greatness of God, the sovereignty of God. Our God is an awesome God, and we need to, as it says in verse 9, go up on a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Lift up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. And that's the thrust of this entire chapter. Isaiah has already written in the first eight verses that God will save his people from the coming captivity in Babylon. They're going to go to captivity but God's going to restore them in the future. And Isaiah exclaims, behold your God. That is to say, look, here is your God. Worship him. You've been looking for protection from other nations, idols, pagan worship. Stop looking everywhere else. Behold your God. And he begins to outline why they should look to Yahweh and no other. Look at verse 10. He says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arms rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Yahweh comes with might. 
There is no one stronger than him. No one. No nation. No other God. And Isaiah reiterates this in verse 15. He says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. And then again in uh, verse 17, he says, All nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. And finally, verse 23 says, Who brings God, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely. Has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like the stubble? You know, if you look through history, again and again, nations rise. Kingdoms rise and fall. And if we look at our nation, it's, it's been a glorious 200 years when we have been free to gather together as God's people, open his word, sing worship songs without fear of retribution. But all nations rise and all nations fall. And the nations that fall are the nations that are in open rebellion to God. And that's where we find ourselves today. And Isaiah is telling them, look, look to Yahweh. No one else will be an unrelenting force like our mighty God. What about you this morning? To whom are you looking for your strength? There's no greater strength you can find than the hand of the of mighty God and His Son Jesus Christ. Revelations nineteen eleven through sixteen says this: Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. What, a, what an amazing sight that is. What an what a image that is. What a contrast to the Jesus that is preached so often today. How he is weak and, and, and he just is begging people to love him. No, the word of God says he's king of kings, lord of lords. Where else will you find such might? And see what strength he comes with. Out of his mouth is, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. It's a reminder that the gospel is more powerful 
than anything a politician can come and say, than any promise that any leader can make. The gospel is what is powerful, and it changes lives. The word of God is a sword that strikes through bone and marrow. Jonathan Edwards says, Oh, what is that? The fierceness and rage and fury of omnipotence, of a being of infinite strength. What an idea does that give to the state of those worms that suffer the fierceness and wrath of such an almighty being. And yet we see open rebellion to God's word every day. It's in our face all the time. And I warn you this morning as Isaiah in his day, do not look to any other for protection. Doing so will be to your own destruction and under the wrath of a mighty God. And Isaiah reminds his people that not only is Yahweh their only true hope of protection, but look at verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Our God is mighty in strength. There is no power above his. There is no one who is sovereign, omnipotent, great like him. And he is fierce in his wrath toward those who rebel against him. But I love what it says here. He's at the same time like a shepherd with his sheep. To those who love him and and keep his commandments, he is loving, he is caring, he is nurturing. He carries them through trials and protects them and he loves them. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We all deserve death for our sins. But thank God he loves us. He sends his son to die for us. In John chapter 10, Jesus says of himself, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Are you in the arms of the good shepherd this morning? Are you trusting your salvation, your eternity with the good shepherd? I mean, there are many hired hands out there running around today, right? They promise peace and security and wealth and health. There's only one true shepherd. And that is Jesus Christ. Do you trust him? 
And I say again, behold your God. Because there's nowhere else we can turn. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? You know, there's a, a lot of talk of science these days and new discoveries and, and how we have, and we do live in a time where we have greater science and greater medication than ever before. But this talk and, and this, as if we have to trust the science no matter what. As if the creator of the universe is surprised by any new discoveries man comes up with. These discoveries are foolish compared to a holy, omnipotent, and sovereign God. Look at verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. And a goldman, goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told from you to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. This is our God. Not a wooden statue that can't move, can't talk, can't breathe, can't do anything that we don't make it do. And we live in a time when it seems all we do is use large amounts of time comparing things. In an age where we can get on our phones and comparison shop everything, right? We all do it. I mean, from cars to groceries to houses, everything. In comparison shop vacations. I mean, all the way down to the, what toilet paper is best. I mean, we live in incredible times. We can, and you can also comparison shop which religion fits your lifestyle best, and many people do. And this is a great tool that we have. I mean, we have many visitors that come to our church that have compared other churches and have decided because of what they've seen online, they come and visit our church. And I'm not saying that all that's bad. All I'm saying is when it comes to spiritual things, we have to be very, very careful. God says this in verse 25, chapter 40. He says, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name. 
by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Our God has no comparison. I mean, you can look at other gods and you can look at other things to worship and, and spend your money on and spend your time doing. But there is nothing in comparison than reading his word that he has given us to praying to him, to worshiping him. He alone is God and will have no other gods before him. And we see this in numerous places in Scripture, but my personal favorite is in Job chapters 38 through 39. And Job is a very well-known story, right? This righteous man praying for his kids. Satan goes to God and says, man, the only reason he does that is because you've blessed him so much. And so one by one by one, all of his belongings, all of his children are all taken away from him. And then he's given sores and he, he's going through all of these things and he, his wife is just saying, Job, why do you hang on? Just curse God and die. And he has friends that come and talk to him and, and try to counsel him. And Job gets to the point where he's like, man, if I could just talk to God. If I could just plead my case before him, I, I just want to understand. And in chapter 38, God calls on Job. He says, who is this that darkens counsels by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. And God says, okay, Job, you want your day in court? You got it. I'm going to put you on the witness stand and maybe you can give me some wisdom. And he starts off with these questions. Where were you? Where were you? Can you do this? Can you do that? And at the end of this question, Job is completely humbled. And he says in chapter 42, I, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, that's the proper response to a mighty God, right? And this is where the rubber hits the road. I, I want you to be honest in your assessment of your own heart. Look at verse 27. Look at the question that Isaiah poses here. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My right is disregarded by my God. See, many today live like God doesn't see. Like they can get away with everything. And, it, and for a times, it, it does seem like the unrighteous go unpunished. 
Howard Green says, Many people have a skewed view of God as a result of pop culture, movie portrayals, and artist renditions. This distortion isn't much different than the prevailing views of God, the Father, and the Son held by many professing Christians. Much of the popular preaching and teaching about God in our day portrays Him as a soft, mild-mannered shepherd who doesn't see our sins through, our, through holy eyes but winks at them instead. This skewed view of God is unbiblical and it will result in millions of unrepentant people uttering, Lord, Lord, as they go into eternity without Him. This is the scandal and eternal tragedy of underestimating God's fierceness. This is a great warning in, in, in Isaiah. Our God is mighty. He is holy. He is a shepherd to his people. But we are not to take his grace and his mercy for granted. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to a repentance? But because of your hand and impenitent heart, impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There is coming a day of judgment. And I know it's frustrating sometimes to, to see the evil that goes on around us. And it just seems like nothing ever comes of it other than more evil, right? But I urge you today to behold your God. He does not grow weary, He sees everything. He knows the thoughts and deeds of each and every one of us. And that, I don't know about you, but that's scary. A.W. Pink wrote, One of the most flagrant sins of this age is irreverence. And by irreverence, I am not, thinking, not now thinking of open blasphemy or the taking of God's name in vain. Irreverence is also failure to ascribe the glory which is due the great and dreadful majesty of the Almighty. It is the limiting of His power and actions by our degrading conceptions. It is the bringing of the Lord God down to our level. There are multitudes of those who do not profess to be Christians who deny that God is the omnipotent Creator. And there are mul multitudes of professing Christians who deny that God is absolutely sovereign. Men boast of their free will, prate of their power, and are proud of their achievements. But they know not that their lives are at the sovereign disposal of the divine despot. They know not that they have no more power to thwart his secret counsel than a worm has to resist the tread of an elephant. They know not that God is the potter and they the clay, Ah, my reader, this is the first great lesson we have to learn. 
that God is the creator, we the creature, that he is the potter, we the clay. This is the harvest of all life's lessons. And when we think we have learned them, we soon discover that we need to relearn them. That is so true. And we, we need to be careful how we speak of a holy God. We need to be careful how we live our lives in front of other people. If we are professing believers. Nahum 1, 7 through 8 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an ever-flowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. So where do you stand this morning? Are you standing and, and, and living your life in the arms of the good shepherd? Or are you under his wrath? Our sin is a big deal to God. And we are all sinners. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you may ask, what does that even mean? What, is, what does it mean that we all sin? Romans 3.10-18 says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I don't know if you, if you can remember back before God miraculously saved you. I know when, before that happened, I had no fear of God. And there are many people in the world today that have absolutely no fear of God. And you may sit here and say, well, I'm not all that. I mean, I do good things. I mean, I might say something that might not be 100% accurate. But I'm not a venomous snake. And I sure don't go around causing ruin and misery. And I sure don't shed blood. I'm a good person. But God takes our sins seriously. And when we sin, we are displaying in our lives and projecting to others that we do not fear God. And that is a very scary place to be. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Think of it this way. You go to work and you punch in and you, you work your 40 hours for what? A paycheck, Right? I mean, if you, if you punched in, you worked 40 hours, and at the end of the week, your boss didn't give you any money, you'd be pretty upset, right? So we go to work to make money so we can provide for our families, so we can to do things, 
hopefully for the kingdom. So we work our 40 hours and we get, expect to get paid for 40 hours. The same principle applies here. You live your, a life of sin. You're storing up God's wrath and judgment. And though you may think you're getting away from it, payday is coming. There is a time coming when God will judge you. And you will be paid your wages for how you lived your life. And that, the wages of that is death. You will be compensated for all the sin you have committed against a holy God. And the Bible says that compensation is death. But here's the good news. The second part of that verse, Romans 6.23. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen, right? When God calls to him, us to himself and we turn away from our sin and run to Christ, he is a good God. And he will save us from his judgment. And when that happens, Romans 6.22 says we are set free from sin. No longer are we slaves to sin, but to God. And the wages of death are exchanged for fruit that leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. How is that possible? Well, Romans 5 eight says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And verse 9 says, if we confess our sins with our mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, that's good news, amen? And we need this good news in a world full of bad news. When we confess our sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we are brought from death to life. And the Bible says we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, look, at, look back at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. It says, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him that has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isn't that glorious? We serve a God that that not only cannot be around sin, he cannot be associated with sin. So he can't be associated with us. So he sent his son to die for us. So that through Christ, we may be made right before God. 
And he is an everlasting God. He is our creator. He doesn't faint or grow weary. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. And I'm sure each and every one of us can testify to that, right? There's been times in our lives when we have nothing left. It's like, God, please, I just need you right now. I need you. And they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Our God is a good God. He's a mighty God. He's a strong God. He's a loving God. He cares for us. He cares for His people. The question that I have to ask is, are you you one of His? Does He know you as one of His children? Are you standing firm in your stance against a holy God that you are going to do things on your own? That you are going to do whatever you want to do? That you are going to find your protection in the government or or this country or, or... this money or this job or, or whatever? Or are you going to find your protection, your comfort, your security from an omnipotent, sovereign, holy God? My plea for you this morning is that you would find it in God. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 17. I'll I'll finish with this. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5. Thus says the Lord. That should make you pause right there, right? Thus says the Lord. Cursed is the man who trusted man who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Can't get much lower than that. Plants don't grow where there's salt. It doesn't happen. Verse 7, blessed is the man. What a contrast. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. And here's the warning. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So again, I plead with you this morning. If your trust and your security is put in anything else other than our holy, sovereign Father, God, turn to him.
Turn to Christ. Put your trust in Him. Quit leaning on your own understanding. You lean on your own understanding, your past will never be straight. God is calling you this morning to turn to Him. And His Word is, and is everlasting and it's true. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for your, your love for your people. God, may we never, ever take for granted the grace and mercy that you give us each and every day when you wake us up and give us breath. And I pray that those who are under the sound of my voice that don't know you, who have no relationship with you, Father, that you would call them to yourself. That they would not neglect the one thing in this life that can save them from eternity and hell. That is your calling on their lives. Your Son, Jesus Christ, and the sealing of your Holy Spirit. Well, we praise you and thank you that you are mighty and you are strong and we don't need anything else other than you. Lord, we desperately need you this morning. We desperately need you each and every day. Father, I I praise you and thank you for your love and your grace and your justice that one day will be on display. Now, we may never see it in our lifetime. There will be a day of judgment. There will be a time when we are with you forever, singing your praise seeing you face to face. No more sin. No more pain. No more tears. Just eternity loving and praising and worshiping our Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.